welcome to the Guitar Omni Podcast. I'm Carl Woolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Each episode, we'll chat with a featured guest from the classical guitar world. Candid conversations, unique experiences, and career observations from the people who best know the guitar. This is your master class in life and the guitar. For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or see Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. So I'm here with Jonathan Leithwood, and he is teaching at the University of Denver, the Lamont School of Music. How are you doing, Jonathan? Very well. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Delighted to have you. I I think you were one of the most recommended uh, guests that that I've had yet. Several people that I've talked to have said, you got to get Jonathan Leithwood on. He's he's, he's incredible. So um, welcome. So I'm I'm taking from your accent that, that you're probably not from Colorado. No, <laughs> although I've been, I've been here for over 20 years, but um, I've somehow not managed to lose the accent totally. Yet. I'm f- from Northeast England originally. Okay. And did you go there to study? Um, here in Colorado or? Yeah. yeah. Yes, actually, in a sense I did. Um, I was in my kind of mid, mid to late 20s and... Um, playing a lot all over. Um, and uh, in England at that time, there were a lot of festivals that um, I was playing at. And I kept running into this amazing performer, composer, and teacher called Ricardo Isnaiola. Right. And um, I never I never had a lesson with him. I would always I'd run into him in these festivals, and then we would go for you know a long walk or something like that and just talk. And I would notice that after these long talks, uh, I would play better for about six months. <laughs> and, then, and then it was necessary to have another talk. And right. then you know, the effect would um, come back. And you know, I hadn't had a teacher for a while, um, but I then went to Denver. And this is where Ricardo was uh, teaching. He was actually right. the chair of the guitar at the Lamont School of Music. And I went, came through, gave a concert and said, Ricardo, is there any way of making this effect last a bit longer? What if I could, uh, <laughs> is there a way of staying here for a few months? And, you know, I'd like to take some lessons with you. And he actually offered me a job. Okay. Um, I became uh, someone that was working here, directing ensembles and uh, teaching a lot of theory classes, things like that. I told people I'd be back in London after about three years, but uh, it's been extended a bit. So, so you, you've you've been there since then. Yeah, yeah. I'm an American yeah. citizen now, married with a family. So, <laughs> so I think uh, I think the effect was the effect was more permanent than I expected. <laughs> so these um these 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 Ricardo walks and and I, I've met Ricardo, so I, I kind of know what you're oh, talking great. about. You know, um, yeah. he's he's a he's he's a bit of a I guess a, a philosopher. I don't I don't know if that's the right way to describe it but uh oh absolutely yeah so so but these 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 talks that uh, you found working their magic on your playing i mean how guitar related were they were they just like hanging out with ricardo soaking that up and wow and, and now i'm playing better <laughs> yeah well they were they were very guitar related but um yeah. but but not necessarily in a very specific way i think that he had a, and still has a u- unique gift for reassuring you 
yeah. that what you're experiencing, um, you know, difficulties you're experiencing, um, blocks you're facing are just a normal part of artistic growth. Right. And um, that right away you know, changes your attitude towards what you're going through. You kind of embrace it more. And, um, and he has a, yeah, I think he has a way of giving you feedback that is completely constructive. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just something about that, the, that combination of someone with such a warm personality, but this very profound knowledge. Yeah. And who, who, who did you study with in England? What was, what was your experience in England before you came to the United States? You said you were playing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because, um, because I, was, because I was totally based in London um, from university days onwards. And um, so I grew up in a small town um, called Hull and uh, okay. had a couple of very good teachers there. Um, in particular, John Tompkins was the, the local teacher. And then um, eventually I found my, found my way to Gordon Krosky, who was teaching um, very many young um, aspiring concert players, teenagers in the... Um, in the north, north part of England, especially, okay. and uh, that took me through high school, and then I went to university and uh, studied with. Well, that that point, it kind of got a little bit, a little bit strange. For one thing, during the summer break before going to university, I started going to visit Paul Galbraith. Okay. Um, you know, a remarkable guitarist, really a genius, uh, yeah. amazing musician of the guitar. And uh, he was in the middle of developing this very unique way of playing that he has. And so I would go and play for him. It was probably just a few meetings, but they could last all day and sometimes right. into the next day. Where was day. he at the time? He was in Manchester, okay. um, living in a small apartment. The first time I met him, he chopped his nails off and he was only playing the piano for a few months. Oh my gosh. So he, I, th I, think he was, I, was, I think it was a kind of musical detox Right. You know, just um, having different tactile, tactile experiences. Um, and so he, he played me a little Bach, a little Beethoven on the piano, told me about his ideas in our first meeting. And, um, and I remember just leaving his apartment feeling kind of lifted up, just lighter. Okay. Yeah. And then he, he told me that if I was interested in his ideas, I should actually go and study with his teacher who was a pianist and conductor. Huh. Um, Interesting. I didn't know that, yeah. Right. Makes sense, um, though, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it's, um, it's something a lot of guitarists find their way to having lessons with someone that isn't a guitarist, right? Right, um, yeah. It's probably and, not a bad uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This guy was George Hadjanikos. He was a very, again, someone that had a profound influence on some of his students. And I used to go to his classes um, and... Uh, was able to have a few lessons with him. So I found, my, found myself at university um, kind of um, wondering what to do in a way. You know, I wasn't having many lessons, but you know, I was having these occasional meetings with people with very different ideas. And so I was looking for a teacher and after a year, someone recommended me to study with a guy called Richard Wright. And at that time, Richard, who lived in London, it was a bit of an unlikely choice. For one thing, he had no students, and for another, <laughs> and for another, he was making his living entirely as an, as an electric guitarist. Okay. 
Um, he had he was in a band called Latin Quarter, and they 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 were one of those bands that has a well known hit in England at the time called um, Radio Africa, and he was just busy doing his thing, writing TV music, um, uh, writing this band, performing and touring with his band, and I think he was a little bit surprised to get a call from someone saying, you know, can I can I have my classical guitar lessons with you? <laughs> but uh, but now you know he's actually. He's the classical guitar instructor at the Judy Menuhin School, okay. um, which uh, has some of the you know most amazing young players in it. Sure. So he's a very strange, uh, someone who had his feet in these very different musical camps, wasn't really interested in combining them or crossover work. He was very interested in what each style of music could do in its own right. And yeah. So he knew how to put them in conversation with one another. But he just, um, he had and still has this tremendous ear. So I found him to be this perfect coach uh, for really pointing out my weaknesses as a player uh, while I was trying to assimilate, you know, all of the inputs that were coming in. Right, right. And so you were, were you in university at the time studying, studying music? Yeah, I was doing, um, I was at King's College London doing okay. one of these very academic music degrees. Um, I think in London at that time, or in England at that time, there was much more of a um, separation between music degrees and um, performance diplomas. Sure, sure. So, you, you know, you could go to the Royal Academy of Music, say, and focus mainly, mainly on performing, or you could go to a university and uh, take a lot of um, classes. So during that time, I think I had to take my guitar out of its case literally three times as far as the university was concerned. Really? Oh, my gosh. Huh. Yeah, very different to now. And certainly yeah. very different to American integrated programs. Right, right, right. Huh. And so, so it was it was just like an academic program mostly. Was there was there a focus on on musicology or something academic like that? Or well, yes. The I would say that it was um, it was an excellent place for the two main branches of study academically at the time, which were music theory and analysis and okay. musicology. And okay. um, I was very much drawn towards opening scores and trying to figure out what made them work. And that was really why right. I decided to go that path because I, right. like maybe in the, the spirit of what Paul was doing, I wanted to focus on my guitar playing outside of my um, academic studies and meanwhile try to get really familiar with orchestral music, chamber music, song, yeah. and so on. Yeah. Do you, do Although you think that's I think there was one too many medieval music courses in that, in that university, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But everything goes in in the end. Sure. Yeah. And is that is that a common approach for for young guitarists in in, in Great Britain, or is that, do you think that's kind of an unusual approach? Um, there were. I think there were some guitarists that that came through um, King's College um, round about the same time, but um, but for the most part, I was the only one. I think. Uh, um, I mean, I would um, I would get on the train to go from my dorm um, into the center of London. And I would meet um, some guitarists from the Royal Academy. So, yeah. so mm -hmm. you know, it was, uh, there was still that sense of being connected with the, the guitar okay. world in general. Yeah, there was, like, there was a community there, yeah. yeah. So, and and was it, is, is that a similar situation for other instrumentals, in, instrumentalists as well? Like people who want to go more on a performance track would go to the Royal Academy and, and others study outside and, and do the yeah. academic thing, yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, so in a way, it forced you to make more of a choice at an early age, um, at a younger age. Um, yeah. But that wasn't the choice I was making. I mean, I very much wanted to pursue a career as a performer. Right. But I just felt that this was the, the way I wanted to go about it. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, a, there's a certain, I, I don't know if freedom is the right word, but there's, if, you're, if you're choosing your own teachers and, and doing so in a way where you, know, you study with somebody for a little while and, and study with somebody else and, and you, can, you can kind of search those, those ideas out that, that are attractive to you, I think that's a much different kind of situation than if you know, this is your teacher for these however many years and, and you're in that program soaking that up, which is, you know, it's that, that can be good too, but it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a much different mm -hmm. approach than, than what we're used to, to thinking about, so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's amazing because, you know, my students come in, they get this weekly lesson. Right. And um, I don't know, even from age 15, I never got a lesson more often than once a month. Interesting. Huh. Uh, because it just wasn't possible otherwise. Right, right. It was too, too expensive and too far. Sure, sure, sure. And so when, when, you, when you came to the States and started working that way, was that, was that unusual for you to, to think of it in that, in that kind of order? Like, what, what is this weekly lesson thing? <laughs> in a way, yeah. And um, also, I think just, just the, the kind of the integration of, um, you know, all into one building. Right. You know, the, you, your office is just across the across the corridor from one of the musicology professors, and so on. Right. And I think also the fact that the the students are often coming in um, with um, they, they're going to be taught a lot of a lot of things from from the basics, including music theory. Right. Um, they're going to learn, you know, slowly and carefully over four years, do their recitals, and so on. Right, right. It uh, did, take, did take me a while to get used to that culture. <laughs> how, how old were you when you started playing? Um, about 11. Okay. And it was, was that a decision that you had been exposed to classical guitar somehow? Or was how, how did that all happen for you? Well, no. Um, I was very interested in drawing um, up until then. And I thought maybe I wanted to be an astronomer. That was okay. like an ambition that was making its way. But actually, that was just because of looking up at the sky and seeing the stars and feeling a sense of wonder. So I should have realized that meant that I should be trying to get into the arts, not into the yeah. sciences. <laughs> in fact, I, I wrote a letter to the most famous TV astronomer in England at that time, Patrick Moore, asking how to become an astronomer. And then he outlined this, you know, long path, you know, starting with physics and then tacking right. on astronomy around about, you know, PhD level or something and all the things you needed to learn. And I felt like I didn't want to be an astronomer anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll be a concert guitarist. That's an easier path. <laughs> yes, well, exactly. But I think actually um, my experience is probably, you know, one of those typical lot of family support experiences, I must say. Yeah. And um, it was decided by my parents that all of all of us kids were going to play a musical instrument. And okay. I, I hadn't really thought of it at all and was generally a bit resistant to doing something new. Right. So um, I, I, um, I thought that when they when they said that there was absolutely no choice about it, um, I said that maybe I would like to take banjo lessons. Um, and um, to, my, to their credit, yeah, my, my mother went and found a secondhand banjo in one of these local 
secondhand shop, like in an antique shop, yeah. and a method. Um, but then we couldn't find a teacher. And then my, I think my sister figured out how to how to how to how to apply the staff notation to the instrument reading because she was already taking some music lessons on the clarinet. And um, and then my brother was the one taking the guitar lessons. Okay. And um, and then I heard him play, you know, the first simple tune. Right. And just just thought that was the most amazing thing I'd ever heard. So I used to sneak up into his room when he when they were out and play his guitar and try and read his method book and get into trouble. <laughs> that's great. Were you, were your parents musical at all? No, I think that's why they 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 wanted us to have that opportunity. Right. Um, I think I learned a lot actually from a banjo tutor by Pete Seeger. Okay. Because I guess a lot of the banjo materials were very Americanized. Like there was fun with strums for ukulele. That was an important right. book in my in my <laughs> early growth. <laughs> Mel Bay. Yeah. And, course, it, and it was yeah. full of American folk songs that I'd never heard right. of. Like oh black, black, black is the color of my true love's hair. <laughs> and um, and on, on the front, there was a picture of a ukulele with next to a big piece of cake for some reason. <laughs> And um, but Pete Seeger, that was again. I didn't really know who he was or what the um, knew nothing about the American folk tradition, modern sure. folk tradition. And um, but it contained all of these this amazing information, like how to build a chord. Yeah. And so it was my. It, he was he understood something about the theory of music that he you know put into this this book. Uh, that, that planted that seed for you. So. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Interesting. And, and when you started playing guitar, was it was it classical style at first? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And is that is that fairly common for for kids in the UK, or is is it? I think it's about the same. Where a lot of people, their gateway is the electric guitar. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. oh goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there was there was a very important player in those days. Um, touring right at that that right time called John Mills. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. A student of Segovia's um, still lives uh, close to where Julian Bream used to live. And um, he was famous for this golden sound and, uh, mm. and a very, um, a very attractive performing personality. And um, he played at church. Well, he actually played at my he played at my school, but I wasn't allowed to go because I wasn't in the school choir or the local or, or the school guitar club. So, oh my gosh. so low, so low. I asked the headmistress if I could go. She said, no, <laughs> but that weekend I saw him play at just in a, a nearby church and, um, it was completely mind blowing. Yeah. Still, I still remember the experience of him walking on stage and did this very optimistic way and just starting to play some Gaspar Sands yeah. and the, just the, the positivity and the gesture of it. Yeah. Uh, no how, idea how the guitar could sound like that. Um, probably 11. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's quite, quite those, maybe 12. Those experiences imprint themselves pretty pretty strongly on us at that age, you know? And it's mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting that, you know, they, they've, I've talked to a lot of people who have had similar experiences at similar ages, you know, they just had, had that one thing that happens. Like, wow, that was, that was it, you know? So, great. So when when you first came to the States... Were you still concertizing a lot in in Europe? Yeah. So you travel. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, but 
I think in, in the States, there's quite a good infrastructure, guitar societies, and also opportunities to play in universities. And right. um, I was playing a lot of contemporary music, for example. So you know, it's possible to find, find quite, a, quite a good audience in various parts of the States. Yeah, and and I've 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 heard a lot of people talk about um, going to see you for the first time when you, the, the first time you played in, in Denver, um, and and they they describe it as you know they'd never heard anything like that before and it was mind blowing and and you you have kind of a unique approach and or at least you did at the time, um, and I, I I don't know if you still if you're still doing doing this but I've, I've heard I've heard tales of you sitting on the ground and and wearing no shoes and having colored socks and these kinds of things do you still do that oh my goodness yeah <laughs> well <laughs> yeah I there what there was a time when um I didn't like to play with shoes on yeah I don't and like was, shoes. I don't like yeah. to wear shoes <laughs> oh, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I and I think I think I was very particular about um wanting to create a certain kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Um, so, so I was quite intentional about um, what I sat on and what the lighting was like. And, um, but I didn't really, real, didn't really realize at the time that for everybody that was really intrigued by that, there would be somebody yeah. that would you know, be absolutely turned off by it. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard from well, those people. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you know, I mean, I think I think whenever anybody does something that's um, maybe unconventional or, or um, you know, I don't, I don't know if revolutionary is the right word or, you know, something that doesn't fit the, the standard paradigm, um, you know, there, there's there's going to be resistance just because people get shaken a little bit. And that's probably not a bad thing. Right. Um, yeah, I think um, I, I remember one thing that happens a lot in the states that people like you to talk in a concert, yeah, you know, and say say something to personalize it. And I would right. definitely definitely advise my students to think about why they why they're playing something and what they'd like to tell the audience. Yeah. But I remember going on a tour in in America, and you know, in the first concert I said a little bit, um, and people said, "Oh, I really enjoyed it when you spoke," and you know, all that. <laughs> so with each concert, I would say a little bit more. And people would just seem to get more and more. There'd always be somebody that was really happy about this, about that yeah. kind of connection. It would say, "Oh, you were a poet," and all this kind of thing. And then, and then from that, I went, I went on to Germany and played in a festival there, um, where it was, you know, very much an English-speaking um, culture. There were a lot of people talking, you know, in the concert, introduced their pieces in English. Mm. But I basically did the same concert with the same um, amount of talking. And it was completely wrong for that culture. Huh. Interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was um, the organizer, uh, you know, sat down for coffee and said, you know, you, you really can't do that. <laughs> what do you think you're in America now? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, a part of that is probably, you know, the, uh, the, the history of, of people going to things like that as part of the culture is is not 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 something that Americans are terribly familiar with, unfortunately, and and so, you know, I think our models for observation in these things are you know, watching TV, listening to people talk all the time, you know, going going to uh, rock concerts where people spend a whole lot of time talking, and you know, it's it's mm. it's that whole familiarity thing, and I think there's something that's nice about it, I think, but I also 
I used to think that there was something really special about the idea that, you know, I would go and sit on stage and not speak a word mm. and have a really profound communication with other human beings, you know, in for longer than an hour at a time, you know, and I, I, I really liked that idea. I thought this, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk because we, we talk all the time, shut the heck up and like, just listen and be for, you know, when else do we get to do that for an hour at a time? And, and I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I guess I, I really clung to that idea for a really long time and then I just gave up and now I talk a lot. <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, I think one of the reasons why a lot of us like to play um, for audiences because you get, a you get a chance to share something about what you're like when you're on your own. Yeah. Uh, what, point, yeah. your most your most private feelings and some of these are emotions that maybe you've only ever had in the context of, of music right and so there is there is something about you know if you say too much about the music especially beforehand are you in a way going to interfere with people just having also their own private um yeah but you know unexpected thoughts and feelings um i think it was when i started playing more and more modern music I felt that it was sometimes very, very hard for people to, you know, switch to an unfamiliar language without some kind yeah. of verbal introduction. Yeah. And is uh, that, that segment of the repertoire, is that stuff that you were having written for you or those particular segments of the repertoire that you were going after for personal reasons? How was, how was that all? Yeah, um, a bit of both. Um, I also played the 10 string guitar uh -huh. and um, I, uh, yeah, there's a well, it's a whole conversation about the ten string guitar. I never I never switched to the ten string guitar to be clear. I would just travel with both instruments. Okay. And play six play six string on the six string and ten string on the ten string. So I think they, they they're very different kinds of instruments. And it's actually yeah, hard how to play that? six string. How were you tuning the ten string? Um well the um probably a lot of your listeners are familiar with Narciso Yepes. Mm-hmm. The um Spanish guitarist who actually, you know, you could you, you would find a lot of his records for sale in England when I was was a kid. I never really connected with his playing very much, but yeah. um, and also I didn't really understand that ten string guitar. So, well, to answer your question, you've got your you've got your six normal strings, right. and then you expect the bass strings to get progressively lower, right? Perhaps stepwise or something like that. Right. But but Yepes had this reentrant tuning where you have a low C. Mm -hmm. And then it goes down to B flat, except wait, it's actually B flat an octave higher than you right, expect. Right, right. And then A flat and then G flat. So so all of these new note names in the on the open strings, C, B flat, A flat, and G flat. Right, right. And right. Yepes, um Yepes was using these these notes just for resonance to make the guitar resonate more equally. Yeah. Um and actually not touch those strings very much. Like um they they make I think in his performances that would make a kind of a cameo appearance you would occasionally <laughs> pluck one of them but um but but um so so i was never very interested in 10 string guitar until i heard the music of maurice ohana this um composer born in gibraltar um and uh, you know close to morocco right and then um or maybe was he born in casablanca and brought up in gibraltar i forget um i think he was born in Casablanca, Morocco, grew up in Gibraltar, and then uh, settled in Paris. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And um, he wrote this extraordinary music for the ten-string guitar, which really made full use of all of the strings. Huh. And um, and this is music that just has this extraordinary elemental quality to it, full of um, uh, visceral rhythms, um, chants, sometimes microtonal bends, mm -hmm. and um, and always seems to be talking about some kind of um, prehistoric, elemental, demiurgic kind of um, time and energy. And um, I, I, I just thought, I must play this music. So I got a 10 string just to play it. Okay. And I went to Paris to meet him as well, um, just in time, just before he um, died of cancer, actually. And I got a chance to play for him. Um, so yeah, Ohana's best known for, for Tiento, this one, right. uh, yeah. six string yeah, that, piece. That's but, six uh, string, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, there's these two cycles of pieces for 10 string and a concerto oh. as well. Did and, he write um, them for Yepes? No, well, wait. Um, he might have written the concerto for Yepes, who recorded okay. it. And he, I, think he, I think he was involved in the very idea of the 10 string guitar. Okay. Um, so he, so he was, he, he had this association with Yepes, yeah. but I think that the, their initial collaboration, um, my impression is that it didn't go much further. And then he, he connected to some other guitarists like Albert Ponce. Okay. He wrote, uh, Sur le jour pareil for him. Okay. Um, and there's another work called Cadron Lunaire, um, written for another Spanish guitarist. Um, so, and yeah, he, when I played for him, he, he talked about the, the kind of sound he, it, he said to me, the first thing I'm listening for is the sound. And this, this was to play Tiento. So this is, um, this is good advice for all things Ohana that he thought that you didn't, he didn't want that, the, the typical classical sound, but something a bit closer to flamenco. Interesting. Um, yeah, he, he emphasized that. And then he talked a lot about getting the, you know, finding the right style yeah. and, um, huh. and of, often referring. I mean, he was influenced by many, many more things than flamenco, but, yeah. um, but that was something that he referred to um, quite a bit. And he thought that Alberto Ponce um, really understood this style. Interesting. Huh. Was, was he a guitarist? Did he play himself? He was a pianist, actually. He was right. um, a concert pianist till about the age of 39. Okay. And then he devoted himself to composing full-time. Right at a time when um, all the power was really in the hands of much more modernist serial or total serial composers. Sure. So it, it took him a long time, really, to, um, uh, to gain recognition as a composer. Um, I... When I wanted to meet him, um, I thought, you know, what can I, what can I tell him sincerely that will that will prompt him to take the time to meet with me? And um, I, I, at that point, I was starting to hear some of his other music also for um, things other than the guitar. Cause he wrote a lot of music for choir, for okay. example, and piano, of course. And I just said that, you know, if I'd been a composer, his is the music that I would have liked to have written. He'd probably like to hear that. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah when, when, I, when, I, when I got there, his, 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 my letter, I could see it open on his, yeah. on his composing Aww. table. <laughs> but, but I don't think it was composing anymore after that. He, yeah. It was this very, very smooth meeting where he 
let me in. And he didn't, he didn't say, like, there was no time wasted on niceties. He knew why I was there. So he just, he just sat down and said, my music isn't written according to any system. I write it, I, I come up with these ideas. I, I study them, I think about them. And I think about how can one idea spring from another. So he just started immediately telling me about how he composed. Interesting. And then he said, right, let's hear Tiento. <laughs> and then and then gave me some comments. I played a bit of Silojopare on the sixth string at that time because mm. I hadn't yet got a ten string. And then um he allowed a certain amount of time for that. Then he made British style tea. <laughs> um because he because he because although he was kind of very Hispanic in his culture, yeah. um coming well, from this little Gibraltar I mean yeah yeah, yeah between Spain yeah. and um, Morocco but Gibraltar's Brit was is British territory right so during the war he had fought for the British army oh my gosh and he had this perfect British accent straight out of the officers mess of the 1940s unbelievable um, and then, so then he just made this perfect cup of British tea and, you know, complained about how you can't get good tea anymore. And, um, and then, you know, and then he said he was hoping to get back to composing, but he had been sick and he had to go to a doctor's appointment next. And, um, it turned out that he had brain cancer. Oh my gosh. And so in about, about nine months later, he, he had died. Oh my gosh. And it, would, had he been ill? Did he, did he know that he was ill at the time? Yeah, he did. Um, yeah. I think he'd maybe, again, I'm just kind of making this up as I go along because this is many, many years ago. <laughs> but I think maybe he had already, he'd perhaps been diagnosed before and was in remission, something oh, okay. like that. Right, right, yeah. right. Or maybe he'd had oh. cancer, but it hadn't been the brain before. Sure. I mean, just how fortunate for you to, to have had that opportunity, you know? Yeah, it was, it was an and, unforgettable experience. And then, and, and I, the other thing I'm thinking about this is, you know, there's, there's, there's a certain element of carpe diem here. It's like, if you have the idea, you should probably probably do the idea because you don't know what's going to happen. So, and you, you could very easily miss out on having that incredible experience. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. So I suppose to get back to um, playing other modern music, um, I, did, I did then ask composers to write for the 10 string especially. Right. Because I just kept thinking, well, there's all of these strings that haven't been plucked as much as you would think by Yepes. <laughs> and... Um, there's all there's you know incredibly especially with that tuning there's so much yeah. awesome stuff you can do with it because the guitar is a little bit like a harp at that point right and you've got the possibility for all of these cluster-like sonorities in the bass and then with harmonics they can be high and um right. it's amazing what can be done with it yeah it's funny because I, I i always think times times that i've worked with people who've asked me about composing for the instrument you know that's one of the things i tell them is you have to be careful with seconds you know that's 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 mm -hmm. a big deal you know um <laughs> right yeah. not the, on the 10 string though yeah with that tuning <laughs> you, you solve that problem <laughs> so. yes yeah, so at, a, at a price but um <laughs> the old thing is playing six string music on the 10 string guitar it's not just that i actually i actually find the all that extra resonance very distracting and kind of um a bit a bit off-putting but it's also you know it's it's you can't hit the instrument as freely there's all right. these strings in the way so i used to feel much more a bit constrained you know so i feel much more liberated playing six string music on the six string guitar and so right so that causes problems on the airlines right carrying two instruments do would you play both in the same concert not only 
that I always played both in the same concert. I even had a couple of pieces um, where I could play both at the same time. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, and, um, and how, how did that work? Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'm not the first person to think of um, somehow having two guitars and playing them. There's, um, yeah. there's one or two earlier pieces, but I didn't know about them. But it occurred to me that um, if you just had a guitar, one of the guitars in front of you, right. um, you can kind of reach forward while things are ringing on one instrument and then do something to the other instrument. The instrument, you know, because there's so many harmonics and open strings, you can create all of these overlapping sounds. And then I would start messing about with trying to move the hands quickly between the instruments so that, you know, so that not absolutely everything is really slow. Right. Um, and then I started um, playing um, a short improvisation on both instruments at the beginning of concerts so that people would see them both and kind of get a sense for how they both sounded. And then after that, so eventually I commissioned a piece from Stephen Goss, actually. Okay. Um, which is available probably, well, I think Steve Goss, Steve's music is quite easy to find. He sure. wrote a, a piece called Oxen of the Sun where it was a lot of fun because we just met and I just showed him all of the techniques I'd thought of. And then he just had this big list of things to put in the piece, which of course he did magnificently. <laughs> and um, you know, a few after a few months of performing it, you know, I came back to him and said, "Hey, I've thought of something else that um, that works really well. Actually, a couple of things, and they're kind of faster and more exciting." And so we just took the last movement away, and he wrote a new one. Wow! And um, and some of that was just you know improvising together, yeah, um, and recording it, and then. And then putting it putting it into some kind of order. Sure. So what 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 kind of techniques are we talking about here? What... Oh, um, well, you can you can have one hand forward on the instrument in front of you, you know, on a piano bench, and right. then you, you have to be able to pluck with your left hand. Okay. So you can. So um, I would pluck pluck on the pluck pluck on both um, guitars. And then use um, mixture of open strings and harmonics. Um, probably important to mention. Important to mention that the instrument in front has a capo on it, so that you get okay. you know a whole bunch of extra notes. So you're kind of dealing with a huge harp. Okay. And it's kind of possible to strum both instruments at once. And it's possible to strum. It's possible to pluck and then play a few notes with the left hand. You know, hammering and pulling sure. off the left hand while. Sure doing something in the other instrument. It's, it's kind of surprising yeah. all the things you can do. Were you doing anything with the right hand on the fingerboard of either instrument? Yeah, that, that yeah. too, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but um, not quite as much, I guess. And I'm not the only person to play his piece, actually. Um, okay. So, so there's a guitarist, in, uh, a Mexican guitarist who's played it. If I, I would have to look up some of the names, but um, you know, really great player. Sure, and, and and is is there YouTube available of this? I, I, I yeah, check this yeah. Out. yeah, yeah. If you have show, show notes, I can send you some links. Because um, we made a video of it at one point at a festival. Yeah. When when was that piece written? Um, I want to say I might get this totally wrong. Maybe two thousand and six, perhaps. Okay, so it's a while ago still. Yeah. 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 And, and you mentioned the, the improvisation, and I know that you, you worked with Stanley on, on um, 
doing some presentations on on improvisation. You guys went to Hong Kong, and I think um, <laughs> yeah. if, I, if I remember correctly, um, we did you do something at the the last in person GFA as well? I, I don't. Remember. Yeah, I think I think yeah. it was the yeah. last in person one, yeah. and um, also actually Steve Goss was in was in those right. talks as well. Yeah, yeah. His, um, perhaps talking more about improvisation and um, how it affects reading and also thinking about composition. But I, I think both Stanley and I um, think a lot about how you can use improvisation to practice better. Yeah. Um, there's always this tendency, I think, to, you know, as, as, as the concert's coming up, you want to kind of hammer it in, you know, and um, do everything the way you're going to do it. Right. But um, I think that it's actually more effective uh, when you have a, a problem you're trying to solve. It could be technical, it could be musical, it could be something about learning the piece in some way. If you can make something up based on that problem or based on what you're perceiving in the music, then it's more your own. And, you know, you're engaging something much more alive. Yeah. And I think that ultimately, if you often improvise on what you're thinking about, um, what you're learning, how you're thinking about it, then before you know it, you're kind of creating something that you can use, maybe a little prelude that you can use before the piece you're playing. Yeah. Um, and oh. it just it just can start to take off. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's, it's that capacity to make something new out of um, out of the input you're getting right. um, leads to a different kind of mastery. Now, is this, is this something that you've done as part of your process for a while, or how, how did you how did you follow up on that? Um, I think, uh, yeah, good question. So, for example, if you have um, if you're playing a piece of Bach, then um, it can be quite overwhelming the amount of continuous movement in the piece, right? It never stops. That's right, the yeah. signature of Bach. Actually, right. when it does stop, it's a big event. Some, like somewhere towards the end, it like goes, whoop. Yeah. <laughs> <And> then there's <laughs> a... Pay attention, here comes the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. There's a big chord, like an unstable chord, and then yeah. there's a little silence, and then, and then, it, make, and then it makes the dash towards the end. Um, so, you know, you, you, want to get, you want to get to a point where if, um, as inevitably happens, something in the fingers, you know, um, there's a little um, neurons don't fire the way they should do yeah. and then the fingers say okay what are we doing and you know the rest of you has to be able to say we're doing this right. not oh I don't know because I gave you the job <laughs> of learning the music so but the, the key thing right is to when you have anything complex like a bark texture to make it simpler in some way as you're learning it yeah. um, so one, one of the things that um I, I think I always did this because of Pete Seeger, because of Pete Seeger's explanation oh of chords. You know, just always thinking, what chord am I yeah. in right now? What harmony is sounding? Yeah. So I would always make these harmonic analyses. And then gradually I, I, I noticed that people like Paul Galbraith um, would um, just instinctively play the chords on their own, like, you know, harmonic reduction of the music. Yeah. And... Um, I've seen a lot of guitarists that do this very beautifully. Lorenzo Michele is another. Um, and so 
I think at that point, you know, if you're playing, if you've kind of reduced a Bach piece to its essentials and you're, you're thinking of it as a harmonic and contrapuntal uh, progression before all of that, all of those beautiful layers of elaboration and expression um, are put on top of it, sooner or later you think, well, what if I took this same reduction and improvised on it myself? Right. You know, added my own layers of expressivity and reduction. What, what might that... Would that be a way of learning this content in a new way? Yeah. Um, so, so that became part of my practice routine at a certain point. Um, and also, you know, I think it's just amazing how many things, if you play around with a problem, the easier it is to crack that problem. And you know, if you're mm -hmm. playing a complex polyrhythm, um, there's usually some part of that polyrhythm that is harder to master than, you know, there are certain attacks in that polyrhythm. And so maybe you just um, take, take that aspect and make up a little exercise. Yeah. But, you know, there again, I use the word exercise, but why call it an exercise if it's an improvisation? Right, right. Um, I think in sports, um, the science of sports training, there's a lot of talk about variability of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it's the idea that, you know, if you want to practice those free throws, it's better to practice them from all parts of the court. Mm -hmm. Here I am, who knows nothing about basketball, <laughs> pretending. So probably what I said was totally wrong. But well, my, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the most sporty person in the world either, but it's, it's, yeah, I think, I think free throws are, are always from the same place. But I understand. But there you go. I see what I yes, there I you I understand go. what you're saying. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, no. So well, I suppose the equipment on the guitar is maybe shifting, right? So right. shifts can be difficult on the guitar, but but it often makes a lot of sense to practice shifts that to, to no note in particular. So you're getting a sense of the movement, the sense of just sure. allowing the arm to move in this easy, free way, sure. connected to the deep muscles in the back, and right, um, and then you can add the the precision later on. Yeah, um, but you know you want to practice shifts in general. Um, so I, I, I don't, I'm not sure that there's really any problem that isn't worth exploring with improvisation. Yeah. And, it, and do you, is this something that you do with your students with any kind of methodology? Do you have a setup to, to teach them how to do this? Or is it, is it just, you suggest it and they find it on their own and, and it's, it's part of the process? Yeah, I do, I do mostly suggest it. Sometimes yeah. there, are, there are things that come up where I see an opportunity to do something. Um, but uh, the nice thing about teaching in university is actually you have other classes other than the studio lesson where you yeah. can explore things with your students. So, um, so we have, you know, pedagogy and repertoire, even guitar history. There's, there's, um, there's a chance to have conversations away from the, the often, you know, um, the lesson is soon over. The studio lesson is soon over. There's, there's, the hour flies by. Right. And um, so, so for now, it's mostly I mention it, demonstrate it a bit, and then occasionally we work on it a little bit. Um, even if it was something as simple as you know somebody's thumb sound could be improved, you know, typical issue. Um, mm -hmm. Then maybe you know I'll just strum a few chords and them just to make the most you know some really full thumb sounds, playing their own choice of notes, right, rather than saying. You know, we're playing this Villanova's Prelude Number One. Now let's play this melody on its own with the thumb, making the best sound. Of course, we'll do that. Right. But why not? 
but why not Step allow them to approach that. it? Yeah, because then because then it's much less because then they're still thinking about being right and what and what I want to hear and yeah. um, and so better to give them much more of their own autonomy, right? In trying to solve the problem. Yeah, I love that. That's 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 great. And have you have you published anything on this? Hopefully soon. Okay. Hopefully soon. But um, again, if we're if we're thinking about just videos and so on, I think a video of um, a talk I gave, the same one that I did with Stanley um, okay. on on working just in the Baroque style, thinking okay. about how improvisation how improvisation can help you with that style. Um, I can send you a link for that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that idea. Yeah, when 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 I was studying with John Holmquist, he often used to talk about um, you know, dealing with technical issues by you know well if you're having trouble with this write an etude for yourself you know yeah and and, and he, he thought you know you can you can go and certainly you can study the the, the pedagogical pedagogical literature and, and find you know things that, that focus on whatever it is you're dealing with but he says you know he said just do it yourself you know and i i, I think there's there's something real about that because then you're getting in there and you're really exploring it um consciously you know yeah absolutely I think it just engages. Uh, well, I think I think it, it demonstrably um, engages um, more of the brain and the yeah. parts of the brain that are associated with um, play and enjoyment and yeah. creativity. And it, it reminds me of um, um, what Arthur Schnabel, the great um, Viennese pianist, used to say. Um, that well, what did he used to say? Um, that I think in one of his lectures, and since we're mentioning John Holmquist, it was John Holmquist that gave me a book of um, lectures by Otto Schnabel to read. Oh my gosh, okay. And somewhere in that book, um, Schnabel says that, um, that love always brings with it a little bit of knowledge of the thing that's loved, whereas knowledge go. on its own can only produce something like love. And I think there's a connection to how we learn there, yeah. that if you're, if, you're, if you're playing the guitar because you love playing the guitar, you discover so much, but if you're trying to get get things right and um, and kind of correspond, kind of fit yourself to some knowledge that you're being fed, of course you need that too. Right. Um, but on its own, it would be pretty thin gruel. So this improvisatory approach, you know, where you make up something that's exploring the problem, not knowing where it's going to take you, because because you love playing the guitar. It's the kind of thing someone that loves playing the guitar would do, right? Right, right. So you can kind of model that for yourself and then um, see where it takes you. And you, I think it can take you pretty far. Yeah. And, and how did you, is this something that, uh, how did you discover this? Was it, was it just from watching other people and, and or was, was it something working with Paul really came in for you or how did, how did that happen? I mean, see, it seems like you've really, you really worked this out and you really have a lot of, a lot of really great thoughts about this and, and, uh, you know, it just doesn't, that doesn't seem like the kind of thing that happens accidentally. Yeah, I think, well, I think it was helpful seeing people like Paul um, yeah. just break, just boil Bach down to its essentials. I think if you go yeah. to any masterclass with Paul, he'll probably do that. He'll probably play a few chords and say, so it's really just this, right? Right. Um, so although, yeah, so actually, yeah, I'm trying to think about it as, as we're talking because, um, 
you know, it's so easy to like invent a story for yourself. Sure. But you know, but you know, George Hadjanikos, his teacher, and then my teacher would talk a lot about improvisation, but but we never we never did it in the lessons. It would just be huh. something he would talk about over the Greek bean soup or something like that. <laughs> Because it was that kind of you know um, full service lesson where you know yeah. you'd, you'd play from in the morning, then you'd go shopping and uh, listen to what he had to say, then he'd play for you and you know, that oh, kind of it. thing. This, that that was all George. But um, he um, he talked a lot about the importance of reviving that spirit. And so if I think about my very first lesson with Paul Galbraith, I played for him the prelude to Bach's Third Lute Suite, as we call it. And you know, it starts dum ya di da di da da di da 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 dum da yum ba dum ba da dum. So I played him um, the entire prelude and presto, and then we then I think we must have spent the next three hours just on what I just sang. Right. And the first thing <coughs> that Paul did was ask me, "What is it anyway? What is this?" So. You know, I gave some kind of technical answer, you know, like a flourish leaving to a diminished seventh chord over a tonic pedal or something like that. I said, no, no, I don't want to hear about any of that. What does it mean? What? I can't even remember exactly how he put it, yeah. but yeah, what, what is it? And what he wanted us was to explore the actual emotional content of the music much more explicitly and in a much more kind of like we're working on this way than... Um, than, ever, than any teacher had ever done. Huh. And before, before we were, before long, we were just working on the first note, the middle note and the last note, just tum, tum, tum. And so a big feature of the way, again, our teacher, George would talk, would be talking about the curves between notes. Okay. Not just straight lines, but that sense of, um, a certain kind of curve that goes that that is present in any interval that can make an interval seem very big or very small actually even though yeah. it looks the same on paper and um paul wanted me to sing those three notes find the curves show them with my hands mm -hmm. but also act in a certain way like convey the feeling with my hands yeah and then this was this, this was obviously very challenging and very it felt very put on the spot, of course, but sure. but it let it it led to the realization that all of those extra notes that are there in the Bach actually clarify those curves and yes. that feeling. Okay. So it's as though Bach is improvising between these big notes, decorating, yeah. but with but with the purpose of actually creating a certain kind of energy. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So so I think the way Paul put it was that these extra notes are not making it more complex they're making it simpler right so again you know if you think about if you think about things in that way sooner or later you're going to try putting your own curves your own your own sure. notes your right. own your own efforts at, at, at simplicity yeah at clarity um because then again you learn something about about why Bach did what he did and how yeah. he did it I suppose the main obstacle is that when when we talk like this, people might think that you have to learn all about the style, yeah. but that's not that's not the case at all. I think that um, when I work with people 
a little bit on improvisation. I often, I often try and model doing it very simply for them. Um, you know, sometimes just playing a few repeated notes or something like that. Um, sure. Reminding them that it can just be a rhythmic thing. Um, because uh, when someone says improvise, don't you feel like you have to play a thousand notes in the next well, 60 of course, seconds? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I think Charlie Parker, and he's like, wait, wait hold on. <laughs> it's almost like what improvisation yeah. seems to mean. Right, yeah. But, you know, but also some of the, I think some of the investigation that's being done into improvisation in terms of like, what is it? It's not right. playing a thousand notes in the next 60 seconds, nor is it playing jazz, nor is it playing North Indian classical music. It's actually, a, it's actually something that's happening in the brain. Yeah. It's a way of knowing something rather than necessarily uh, the outward manifestation of what you do. So someone that improvises knows, has a different knowledge of whatever, a C major chord. Right. than someone that only reads it off the page. Um, so that's, I think, the starting point that, that I try and try and bring to this. Yeah, that's, that, that's good stuff. That's very, very profound, really, really intense. And I think, yeah, I think, I think, I think you need to publish this stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll try. Um, <laughs> well, it's just, it's, it's, it's an approach that, I mean, this, this is not a common approach. This is not something that, that I think happens um, in a lot of places, you know, and, 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 it, it, and it sounds it sounds like it, it could be so very effective in so many ways. And obviously for you, um, it has been. And, and but it's just it just seems like a big, extremely unique approach and, and just wonderful at the same time. So congrat congratulations. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think one of the hardest things about teaching is actually sharing with people how you go about things. Yeah. Um, because you're not really sure. Like, I think sometimes the things that mean the most to most to you as a in your own practicing, um, you might even dismiss a little bit when you're in the company of someone else. Yeah. I just think, well, I should just be giving them the better fingering. Right. <laughs> you know, for this little bit or explaining to them about something about Baroque style. And, and yes, I think, you know, you do have to do that. There's a limited amount of time and um, there's, a, there's a lot to, there's a lot that people, you know, want to know. Um, but, but again, you know, if um, this kind of exploratory approach uh, will take people where they, where they want to go ultimately. And, and in a in a much what's a much more tangible kind of real connected to the individual way, you know. It's like if, if if I were to if I were to do that for myself, the results of that work would re, I'd really feel some ownership over that, you know. And I think so much of the way that we study is, you know trying trying to achieve an ideal you know we, we hear somebody play and we say i want to sound like that or mm. you know we work on a really hard piece and we say oh you know i want to i want to be able to play this really well you know but it's it's not this kind of deep personalized process you know and and, and i think there's we talk about being artists that's 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 the nature of of artistry you know is is that and, and I, i've always had this idea about performance you know that it's uh 
so many times I, I, I get the feeling that when I see somebody play, if I saw them play the same piece tomorrow, it would be exactly the same as it was today. And then the day after that, it, was, it would be exactly the same. And, and I always thought, you know, we're, we're, we shouldn't be, you know, dusting off museum pieces and holding them up and saying, look, look at this nice thing. We, we should be playing with them. We should be, you know, it should be spontaneous. It should be real and happening in real time. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's part of that, that process. Yeah, I think, I think the thing that stands out for me in, in everything you just said, which I, I totally agree with, is, is, is cultivating that sense of ownership. And I think that there's a, a huge paradox in the teaching process, right? Because if you say to somebody, right. okay, now go and find out this thing for yourself, or um, now, um, uh, now teach yourself this thing, you're, you're kind of into, there's a kind of an interference there, right? Where right. they're still taking it from the authority. Um, right. They're still being given a project by somebody. Whereas it's those, again, it's, the, it's those things that you discover for yourself um, completely independently. Again, just letting your love of playing take right. where you want to go. So, so, so one of the difficult things about teaching uh, it seems, seems like that's good. that's our conversation for today is just about about teaching, which you know I, is what I mostly do now. Um, is that I've been amazed at how many how many methods for encouraging students to teach themselves can actually backfire a little bit. You know, you might think, well, I'll just take a Socratic approach. I'll instead of telling them stuff, I'll ask them questions. You know, I'll say, well, what what might be a good fingering here, or what do you want to do with this? I mean, in a way, that was Paul's approach um, right. in the lesson I, I recounted to you. And it can be very, very effective, it can, but it can also be very challenging for the student and make them feel like you're fishing for a particular answer. Yeah. Um, and that you're, um, and that there's something about the way you're asking that in some way um, puts them on a spot that's very uncomfortable for them. Yeah. And so, so you can end up with the kind of it can it can backfire a little bit, and so I feel that um, well you know what one of the things it does is it really reinforces the the teacher student um, personalities right you're the yeah. teacher saying well now I'm asking you these questions that right. are going to I have you're going to have to answer but I'm waiting for you to give it to me yeah right right and and, yeah. and as a teacher you can even feel yourself like you know if the student isn't isn't answering quickly enough, you know, you forget that maybe it took you years to come up with an answer right. <laughs> that, you're, that, that you feel has some promise to it. And you're asking them to come up with something the next minute. And, yeah. and if they don't respond in a kind of a promising way, you know, you're very tempted to interrupt. So instead, I think that maybe it can be more effective to, to present yourself in the lesson also as a student. Um, if you share something of what interests you. So this is just following on a little bit from what I said about sometimes if you, you're thinking about what you actually do, what actually is an approach that you, you like for yourself and feeling that maybe um, you might even forget to talk about this in the lesson because you're busy trying to convey you know, the, the conventional things with all of the conveying of information. Um, and maybe the student won't be helped by what the way you personally go about something, but you know, if you but if you if you allow to a limited extent, um, something of what your personal approach is into the lesson, 
then there's kind of, you know, you're presenting to you a much richer um, picture of yourself to the student, both as a teacher and a student. Is, the, is it perhaps then possible that the student starts to resonate back to us, but as, as not sure. just a student, but also as a teacher? And then yeah. there are four people in that room, yeah. two teachers, two students, in a much, much richer conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. I've always, you know, I've always been kind of intrigued by this idea that, that I have some students where I teach them and it's exhausting because it's, it's one way, you know, and other students that I teach and it's, it's, it's invigorating, you know, because it's a dialogue and it's, it, it's, it's a shared experience. And I, I try to tell my students, it's like, look, you, you, you bear 50% of this relationship here and, and, you know, you need to give to me and I can, the more you give to me, the more I can give to you. And, and some students really get that and some, some don't. And, and it's, but it's, it's, it's always been something that's been really intriguing to me about that, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I, I like that. I like that idea that, yeah, that there's four of us in the room. That's, that's great. I, I try to plan you know, a block of lessons, um, you know, especially teaching a university where people have recitals coming up, you know, right. you can get away from you and then you, you know, you have to bear in mind how many, what small number of lessons there are before someone has to do something that's, um, right. you know, a public event. But, but I, um, I think that the question I most ask students in lessons is, um, is there something you'd like help with? Yeah. Um, and I find that sometimes with students that, um, you know, aren't particularly responsive to what I might just go ahead and say, right. um, if I simply start with that question, then, then we're off on a different foot. Right, right. It sets a different tone for the, the experience, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Great. So do you have do you have anything coming up that, that people should know about uh, or, or anything that, that recently finished or recordings or plans or anything of that yeah. nature actually the most important thing that i'd love to plug is um the festival and competition that we're going to have here right in denver lamont school of music and um i have a really wonderful colleague um at, at lamont called laura husbands a wonderful musician guitarist um a wonderful teacher also english by Oh my gosh! Sheer chance. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I've <laughs> got a, a very English-sounding guitar studio, but um, <laughs> she's the artistic director of the festival, um, and uh, and during the this intense three days, um, we have um, a competition um, with um, a two thousand five hundred dollar first prize, also a youth competition. Between the two competitions, there are. There's over $6,000 worth of uh, prize money and, um, and also guest artists, of course, including Adam Holtzman this time. And, um, and during that time, I mean, for me, it's a wonderful opportunity to meet people. So anybody who enrolls in, um, in the competition can certainly have um, a lesson with me if they would okay. like it. Um, I offer a lesson to everybody during that weekend. And I'll also give a masterclass and a lecture, as will, of course, um, there'll be masterclasses with the guest artists. So, um, mm. so, I, so I, I work very hard during the, these three three days. But um, I would love to um, have people come, and you know, I'd love to connect with them, and also, um, you know, uh, see uh, enjoy their playing in the competition. Sure. When when does that happen? That's 
Uh, yes, 9th to the 11th of September. Okay. And um, people can, again, uh, I can share a link to the homepage of the festival. It's kind of buried okay. in the in the University of Denver website, but probably a, a search for Denver Guitar Festival. Sure. Um, and probably if you add my name or Laura Husband's her name, it should, okay. it should come up with uh, with what people need. And, and I imagine this is something that you've been doing for several years? Well, actually, well, as I say, it was Laura's idea, but um, she, we planned, we did the first one in 2019 and we had, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, so we, and we thought we'll, we'll do five of these. Um, okay. We'll do five years and then we'll, and then we'll assess how it went and, you know, how it fitted with our goals, which is partly just to, again, connect, bring people to campus um, sure. and, uh, and just enjoy, uh, enjoy the competition and the guests. But, um, uh, that went really well. We had a much, much uh, better response than we had planned for in the first year. So I had to give many more lessons than I thought I was going to. <laughs> and um, and then we did an online version in 2020. Okay. Um, Including the competition? Yeah, yeah, we did the competition, but we um, it was obviously all online via video. Right. Yeah. And um, it was a lot. Um, so we took a break in 2021 and now we're back in person on campus um, this September. So so this is going to feel a little bit like the second, in fact. Right, right, right. Great. And who else is coming besides Adam? Um, Marina Alexandra. Okay. Ricardo Cobo. Oh, fantastic. And uh, yeah, so, so three guests. And um, yeah, and, and, and in a sense, yeah, I'll 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 be there the whole time, uh, wanting to work with people. Right. I'm also I wanted to mention that I'm also an Alexander Technique teacher. So oh, okay. I'm sure we're way out of time here, but um, not at all. <laughs> we, we, we can keep talking. <laughs> so I should probably say what it is, um, <laughs> because it's much. It's probably significantly more popular and offered in the in the United Kingdom, the United States. But um, it's uh, simply. Um, an educational method for helping people recognize harmful patterns of tension yeah. and and undoing them with very much the emphasis on undoing and and understanding I think how these patterns of tension start before the movement has even been made mm -hmm. you know, before you're even aware of it in the body so I don't mean this in some kind of depth psychological sense but simply noticing you know before you pick up a guitar how perhaps you're already starting to hold your breath or hollow that lower back or or tell yourself um you know that you've got to take a special posture um and just helping people to recognize that um and then um move differently more easily um and it's something that it requires a lot of training but it's one of the best things that i ever did um as a learning process and um always i'm always keen to share that with uh with people and how, how did you how did you get into that well actually it started right back in my teens when um when i started to play um i just for some reason immediately started to play with my right shoulder more or less up into my ear okay and um <laughs> so 
probably it wasn't helpful that you know I started somewhat late, you know, nearly nearly aged eleven. So you know, a lot of a lot of habits are already making themselves known as you're approaching your teens, and so yeah. that's the how I went about it. And I had my first lesson with Gordon Krosky when I was fifteen, and I asked him after I played Astorius for him and Richard Rodney Bennett and so on. I said, you know, have you any idea why I get so tired when I when I play this piece? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, your right shoulder is is is, is held up high. That might have something to do with it. Yeah. And then he said, um, "See if you can let go of that and develop a new habit. Um, and if you if you don't, if you're unable to let go of the habit, Alexander technique lessons might help." And then he said, "But hopefully that won't be necessary." <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> I thought, well, <laughs> that doesn't sound good. Like, why not? And he said, he said it's because said it's because it's a it's something you you learn for your entire life right it's not just something you apply to the guitar playing it's something that you apply to all of your activities so um but of course that's the beauty of it right is that um isn't that how we how we think about our our lives with the guitar car right i mean we're we're doing the washing up and yeah and we're thinking about how to play that phrase more beautifully or what we're going to learn next but also you know when you're doing that washing up you're making it's still you making right. those movements. It's the same and it's body, still, yeah. And, yeah, yeah, and it's you that's going to play the guitar. So it's actually a little easier to to use those arms better and not have your right shoulder. You know, probably that right shoulder is up close to your ear in everything you do. Right. So you may as well, you know, <laughs> bundle everything together and um, sure. and become become the kind of person that doesn't do that. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's where the power of the technique is because it's definitely something that starts by recognizing the force of habit. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know, I, 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 I took a, a semester-long seminar on Alexander Technique when I was an undergraduate, and it was it was, it was rather eye-opening in a lot of ways, you know. And and when when I have new students now, I always I always talk about seating, and I I think you know we're all expert sitters, you know, like, so mm. just apply, apply your expertise as a perfect sitter to the art of playing the guitar. Why should you sit any differently because you have a guitar in your lap than you do when you don't have a guitar in your lap, you know? And I think that getting that observation yeah. of where your shoulders are and, and where your balance is and where your weight is and these kinds of things, um, you know, it's. I really, I really like that because, um, I mean, on the one hand, if someone really goes for a lot of Alexander technique lessons, they learn, they learn in their everyday life to to sit with even more comfort and ease than, yeah. than when they started. But but it's really the case that if you take that very um, everyday approach, where you just ask people not to not to do something unnecessary, right? Um, uh, it helps students to to be reminded that they do have a comfortable place they know how to get back to. Yeah. So yeah. when they when they're doing that difficult shift and you know their their eyes are right by their left hand and yeah. you know and their back is not liking it, but maybe they don't fully come out of it, um, you know, in the next passage and and it can just that helpful reminder like you no, know, just remember to come back to neutral now, right, right. come back to a place of balance. Um, is really the essence actually of I think the Alexander technique also, which is just starting from where you are and finding something better that's available to you right now. That's great, that's great. Well, 
Is there anything else that you think we should talk about? <laughs> um, well, this would be a very long podcast, but um, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I think if, I think if we're talking about just you know a, a couple of massive influences, I mean, one is certainly Julian Bream, and I. Right. I also wanted to mention William Bennett, um, one of the leading British flutists of his generation, just because he died last week. And um, he was somebody that I performed a lot with. Really? And um, he, I made a couple of CDs with him. Oh my gosh. And uh, he's definitely, I think, someone I'd point to in that, like, that later time, like when I came to America, who really did um, change my way of thinking about music um, huh. really radically. Because he was just the most, um, he was just somebody that, you know, was performing every day of his life. Yeah. Either as a soloist or a, an English chamber orchestra and constantly teaching. And um, he was somebody that I think answered a lot of questions just by, just by, that just got answered because I was rehearsing with him so much. Amazing. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, and and how, uh, how, did you, how did you associate with, association with him? Yeah. Um, I think he had an old school friend who wanted him to, who was starting a concert series and wanted him to play a concert with the guitarist. Okay. And, um, and uh, Wib, as he was known, William Bennett, it was right, those yeah, were his yeah. initials. Um, he, um, he had, he had um, played with guitarists, um, especially Simon Winberg, a Canadian guitarist, okay. but um, it, they weren't, um, he wasn't available at that time, so so our mutual friend said, "Well, I, I'd like to make a suggestion." Huh. Um, so it was kind of a blind date, and um, and then I went to his house and uh, we played through the program, and then we ended up playing together a lot more. So he, he had this way of teaching that was very much based upon the natural inflections of speech. Um, so he would um, he would put words to things. And, um, and just show you directly that, you know, you either had too many accents or the accents were in the wrong place. Right. And um, there was something actually a little bit, reminds me a little bit of Baroque performance practice, although that wasn't his, um, his background at all. He wasn't yeah. a member of the early music movement or anything like that, although yeah. he did record all of the Bach flute sonatas um, and concertos and things like that. But, um, you know, very often I think in mainstream music making, there's a lot of emphasis on finding the high note in the phrase sure. and kind of organizing around that. And he would instinctively hear things like where the cadence was or mm -hmm. how something was moving rhythmically towards an important downbeat. And so he would often shape sensitively around the high note but put the main accent somewhere else. Like, so he was very, very open-minded, I think, about where, where, the, where the main emphasis of the phrase was. And it was always related to some word. I mean, he, you know that uh, Bach lute suite, um, what we used to call the second lute suite, BWV 997. And flutists play that a lot. Okay. And because um, it was thought that maybe it was a flute sonata at one point. Okay. So I used to go to Wibb's um, summer school, play a concert with him there, and then attend all of his master classes, just listen to him teach all of these flutists. I'd yeah. be, you know, it'd just be otherwise all flutists there. And um, one day somebody played that for him, and she'd had lessons with him before, so she knew kind of what, what he'd be listening for. And when she was done, he said, well done, you didn't kill a single elephant. 
And so what he meant by that was that every time that piece goes, you know, that was an elephant. Another elephant. An elephant. An elephant. And I'm never going to be able to listen to that piece again. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, it was. There were a lot. Well, there were lots of flute pieces of elephants in them. I can assure you. But he would always point out that people tend to put kind of a secondary accent on the last note. Right. Right. You know that it isn't really like a pure, simple three-note gesture with one focus on it. And he would say, you know, don't say elephant. Right. But he had, he had this whole vocabulary like that, that he would I teach with, it. among many other things, of course. And there was just this sense of, like, emphasizing how people should be telling a story. And um, yeah. it was just a huge change from the kind of very philosophical, yeah. high-minded <laughs> teaching that yeah. um, I had encountered up until then. What, 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 what did he use for two-note um, appoggiatorias? Taxi. Taxi. Okay, there we go. Elephant and taxi. We have it. <laughs> Elephant is, and that's, taxi. That's the secret. <laughs> exactly. And if it was a three note like, that went da that kind of thing, which mm -hmm. often happens in um, especially romantic phrases, he was he'd always think, I love you. Oh. About finding that um, finding that the, inflection. The bounce to the high high note. Yeah, and you can really hear we can really hear that direct eloquence in his playing oh my gosh um, that's fantastic because yeah i'm thinking now I, I talk so much to my students you know especially about appoggiatorias you know and i and i i just analyze it for them and tell them what it means and and you know the next lesson they come in and what, what was that word you used oh yeah appoggiatura mm -hmm. yeah no taxi is much better than appoggiatura <laughs> taxi yes <laughs> yeah i mean it's absolutely i, I think um Again, going back to Schnabel, um, yeah. that book by John that John Holmquist gave me. Again, somewhere to, somewhere in one of the, in, in, in those pages, I haven't got that book out for years. Schnabel says something about that even great musicians often mispronounce the music um, in a way they never would with something in their native language. And I remember just, of course, there was no example. I just thought, I wonder what on earth he means by that. Yeah. You know, I used to worry about it actually, and think, uh, I wish I knew what that meant because I'm sure I'm <laughs> sure I'm getting it all wrong. everything, yeah. Right, and I, I yeah. just after working with Whip, I just felt like, oh, I totally see it now. Yeah, amazing. That's a great idea. I love that. Fantastic. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, it's it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I, my 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 Me mind too. is. Uh, is spinning and and my my heart is full and I I I, I want to hear you play sometime. <laughs> well, I, I will have that. Yeah, and maybe we'll play something together one of these days. Oh my that gosh, would I, I would, it yeah. would be it would be great fun. So, but I, yeah. I really appreciate your time and, and speaking with us and and sharing all these great ideas and I get the feeling that we've just scratched the surface as well. So. Oh well, it'll be fun to have another another good chat one of these days. As you said, yeah. it's uh, it's just like hanging out after the festival concert, right? Yeah. So <laughs> hopefully we'll have that opportunity sometime. I hope so. Thanks so much. Best of luck to you. Thank you. This is Carl Wolwind of Columbus Classical Guitar. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Guitar on My Knee podcast. 
For more information and past episodes, please visit columbusclassicalguitar.com or Carl Woolwind Guitarist on Facebook. <laughs>